Hello and welcome to the Game Dev London podcast, a community of amazing people who love talking about and sharing their love of the details behind making games, whether or not they're actually based in London. I'm your host, Oscar Clark, he, him pronouns, and I am on a quest to understand everything you wanted to know about Game Dev, but never dared to ask. Today, I am delighted to be joined by the amazing Nina. Nina, how are you doing? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, and particularly about Lovewish. Yay. Hi. Nice. To, uh, lovely to be here. Uh, Nina, she, her. Uh, and yeah, um, I don't even know where to start. I've been in games for like 18 years or thereabouts. Uh, started in QA all the way back in 2005 and have done almost every title under the sun since then. Worked mostly as a contractor, um, most notably with Revolution Software, where I was for eight years. And less than a year ago, I set up my own studio, Love Wish Games, uh, where we make games that are deep and intelligent, that celebrate the colorful fantasies of girls and women. So that's an interesting area. I mean, I, I, I remember back in the old Java days, people coming to me and say, we've got games for girls, they're pink. <laughs> that was literally their only differentiation. I mean, obviously things are a little bit better than that now, but I mean, is this still a struggle to get people to understand why defining that audience matters? I think there definitely is a struggle of sorts. I don't think that, um, I don't think the struggle anymore is about people understanding that female representation is a thing that, you know, yeah. we should just have. Uh, like loads of AAA games now either let you choose uh, between male or female uh, protagonists yeah. Some even em embrace, I think, non-binary uh, choices yep. as well. Uh, and and indeed, we have some really high-profile cases of where like entire stories are told from the point of view of a female protagonist. Most notably, Last of Us Two, I think, is a very strong case, and you know, LGBTQ yep. representation as well. Although the thing we'll get that's... into that later, I'm sure, about our our both love and hate for aspects of that particular storytelling and admiration for those teams as well as frustration. Anyway, sorry. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, th the thing is about games like The Last of Us is that I think that they have a place and they're really valuable and important yeah. in and on of their own right. But what they aren't is they aren't a representation of kind of um, the, the, the colorful dreams and fantasies that I had as a girl. Yeah or indeed in my early 20s, I, my fantasies were not about going out there fighting zombie-like creatures and punching and strangling fellow women. Uh, it was not really top of my list of like, what? this is- I mean, come on, what? why is that not in every woman's <laughs> top 10 list, surely? Um, and and I th so I think actually what we have is, it, it's wonderful, it's it's genuinely wonderful to, to see so many female protagonists um, you know, present. I think we can do more in this area, but that ha that has been addressed. What for me hasn't been addressed really is the fact that if I do want to engage with those kind of really girly, feminine things, and I don't mean just the color pink, <laughs> but but just you know anything that's kind of like, um, yeah, just what I used to think about. Have something to say about the the perspective, you know, the, and I think yeah. again, it's not just one perspective. There are are a Lots. rainbow of perspectives in that context Lots. as well. You know, and boys have like FIFA and Formula One games, and yeah. you know, they have games where they can be barbarians beating people up, and cops and robbers type games, you know, GTA, these are all great games, but but they are fundamentally, I guess, a celebration of boys' fantasies. And yeah. so for me, it's all about, well, where are the games that are like that, that have deep and meaningful gameplay, but also have those really colorful fantasies that we generally tend to see only really in the casual space. Yeah. Uh, you know, casual space is great at this stuff. There are tons of games that are really celebrating the colorful fantasies of girls and women in that space. But when I play those games, particularly uh, a lot of mobile games in this space, what I find is I'm not satisfied as a gamer. As a gamer, they don't satisfy me. They are, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, just casual in their nature. And I enjoy that occasionally, but sometimes, I really want to train my brain, you know, or I really want to be challenged or I really want to achieve mastery over something or I really want to have a big collection that is I've collected through hard earned, you know, like just struggle throughout yeah. the entire process um, or it's strategic thinking or, you know, um, 
management of different resources, if you're thinking of sort of like strategy games, they don't tend to incorporate female fantasies. And I, I want both. And that's what Love Wish is about. No, I think that's absolutely spot on. I mean, I think it's really interesting. And particularly, I think the other thing I think, so I, I might as well get into it. One of the issues I have in terms of some of the ways that some of those AAA games, and I, I pick on Last of Us because I both love and find it incredibly frustrating, is because I think the biggest power of games is that we can tell stories as verbs rather than as nouns. You know, it's oversimplification, but what I'm talking about is it's an action. We do, we don't show. And I think when uh, we have a game, and I, I had the same thing with another zombie game, um, um, uh, Days Gone, uh, the other day, where you, you're doing something and suddenly they restrict all the rules that were previously in place and now you can't do the things you used to be able to do just because they want to do a particular bit of narrative from their specific perspective. And I feel like it's cheating. Or at least it's... It's not cheating is not the right word because cheating implies that they're they're doing something that they shouldn't. It's more that they're missing out on the possibilities of, of telling stories through action, in a which is I think a different beast. Is that is that make any sense? Definitely makes all the sense. I mean, having worked in the narrative space quite a lot, I, I'm constantly thinking about these sorts of issues with game development because on the one hand, if you want to tell a story that a player has a lot of age agency and you can do that through a lot of different ways right mechanically you can tell the story by you know a, like braid is a great example of a game yeah. tells a story through its mechanics as well yeah. as you know uh telling a story kind of more superficially um but i think sometimes there are games like the last of us that are highly cinematic yeah. and necessitate almost kind of this restriction of like oh we're going to take away player agency in order to convey the story that we've set on a path and there is no other way like Thus, I don't think would work that well as, um, let's say, a branching story where no. you choose to take it one way or another. You'd never get the core kind of what it's trying to deliver, what it's trying to tell you about toxic masculinity, essentially, yes. wouldn't come through without forcing you into those really awkward non-agency situations. When I've talked about why I like the way Witcher handles that stuff so well, because it kind of gives you the pretense of agency. And therefore, it never has to take that agency away because the first choice is always the only thing that actually leads to anything. And the other choices are just getting more information about the history of the world, which I think is super clever. Um, but anyway, let, let's not talk about because we could talk about narrative all day. Um, <laughs> why we got you on is because you're in an interesting position. Uh, I mean, there's lots of reasons why I'd get you on anyway, because, you know, you're interesting to chat to. Um, but the reason in particular was that you were on a, uh, an accelerator program, which I helped run, but also you've done another accelerator program, which we didn't have anything to do with. And I'm not here to compare notes, by the way. You know, we're all we're all friends. Um, what I'm interested in really is to start talking about it is from a point of view of you're setting up a company. Mm -hmm. You're looking for advice. And you're looking at ways of getting support. And it seems to me there's a whole bunch of avenues around this. There's the accelerator process itself. There's the thinking about how you evolve the way you think of the, your business as opposed to just making a game. I think there's also other areas like mentorship, which I think is also a very kind of interesting space. I think also collaboration. We, we, I mean, I think one of the main things for me I like about getting involved in those things is not just the fact that I like the sound of my own voice, which clearly I do. Um, it's more that we can be amongst a whole bunch of peers and learn something different because of those different perspectives. That's again why I like to talk about your your approach to narrative because I think it's there's a connection, there's a natural connection between thinking about different perspectives and the value of listening to other people's voices, which probably means it's a good time for me to shut up and let you speak. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about why you wanted to get involved with accelerators, what you thought was useful about it. You know, tell us a bit more. So I think it's might maybe useful to know how Love Wish even came about. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's not that I didn't have kind of a loose idea of a, a sort of studio that I might want to have one day, uh, but it actually all started with um, bringing on as a contractor, bringing on a junior who I really saw a lot of potential in. And I really, I was so keen to work with her, uh, but one of my clients that uh, she'd done an um, internship with, they uh, weren't planning to keep her on so I was like well maybe she could come and work for me because I really loved working with her and I could really see that 
you know, that collaboration could, could go far. But of course, the problem is I didn't have quite enough client work for us. So I said, let's do an internal game. We're going to start on something, something that I've been really wanting to do for a long time. And it was actually not after, like when, once all the contracts were signed and, you know, I went through all the process of figuring out how to become an employer. And that was, you know, a bit, bit of thinking. Um, and bear in mind, <laughs> just honestly, but um, at this point I was still a sole trader. And actually this is something that's maybe useful for people to know in general. Sole traders can be employers. In fact, you don't even need to have a company or be a sole trader to become an employer. Uh, we employ our nanny just as people. So it's a completely separate process. And having become an employer, I think at that point, it was like something happened, something clicked in my brain that hadn't clicked before. And it was it was kind of a point of no return. It's like this thing that had been in my imagination, there was no turning back. This is now a thing that was going to happen. You're now an entrepreneur. Right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. Although I wasn't yet at that stage. I wasn't thinking I'm now an entrepreneur. It was more like, wow, this game is going to get made one day because yeah. I'm actually paying someone to work on it now. So that yeah. it's got to happen. Um, and and so we applied for UK Games Fund, but we couldn't apply for it as sole trader. We had to set up a company. And that's when I founded the company. It was actually on the way back from develop on the train. I was filling in the forms. And uh, Lorna says she remembers, that Lorna is uh, the junior that I took on at the time. She remembers the moment where I sent a message saying, we are now an actual thing. <laughs> we exist. <laughs> Uh, it's funny my my experience with like setting up a limited company came out of necessity because i did try doing the sole trader thing for a while but from a tax point of view it was an absolute nightmare and i was doing consultancy so i set up initially as a as a consultant i set up the company then we had to set up a company to make a game and then you know that game didn't work out we then created a, a a joint entity we actually worked as two separate companies for a long period of time under a common banner then when we decided we're going to publish games we needed to make sure we raised money we needed to make sure we had a company for them to put that money into so it was it's an interesting kind of journey isn't it and you kind of like go oh this thing is not just about kind of like uh, an entity it's also there's there's tax issues there's like risk issues there's there's a whole bunch of things to go with it aren't there yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think at that point in time, that was not where my mind was at at all. Like yeah. I, I hadn't even started considering any of these things. However, there was now this legal entity that existed, mm -hmm. an actual company that I was the founder of. Um, yeah. And again, it was like another thing that clicked because once that happened, it was like, oh, there's a point of no return. Um, we were awarded the funding from UK Games Fund. Oh, and sorry, before I actually get onto that is as part of the application process, you have to describe what your company is and what the company's aims are. So I actually yeah. have to sit down and really think about, well, what do we actually want to do with this? And I think that was the point at which the company truly was born as a thing that has its own purpose yeah. beyond outside of like what I wanted to do with this one game. And having been awarded that funding, alongside that same process i think it actually overlapped kind of the application process for the indie lab and for mm. the uh, creative enterprise uh, accelerator i think it's called foundations for game studios yeah um all of those had similar forms but with slightly different questions so with each of those questions it was like oh i need to think about this oh i need to think about that and and mm. i sat down and i did the thinking and by the time that was done with the application process for all three of these things there was a real company there with an end with, an, yeah. with its own identity. <laughs> but I like the way you said that earlier, though. But you know, it is an identity that exists outside of just the game. Yeah, outside of the game and outside of me, like yeah. and outside of Lorna, it became its own thing. Um, and and I think that's really when when the journey truly started. Um, so then, come January, uh, both uh, accelerators kicked off i was delighted to have been accepted to both and also slightly panicky because i didn't know how i was going to fit all of this two in. accelerators you're running a company you've got family stuff and a lot of real life getting in the way i'm sure as well how and client work i was yeah. like ah. client work as well yeah yeah so so it was yeah it was a lot a lot all at once um but i tell you what i think as i went through 
each of the different um, parts of both accelerator programs, I gained so much from it. Right. Um, because all those things that you were speaking about, like the tax side, the risk management, um, I also actually, alongside the accelerator programs, did an intensive training in HR, because I was like, this is an area I know zilch about. I, I know lots about making games. I have run my own sole trader business. So I know a little bit about managing finances and that side of things. But what I don't don't know anything about is employer responsibilities and kind of, I think in particular, I was really keen to understand better the um, process for getting rid of people. I know this sounds really terrible, but um, but because I've had some bad experiences There's previously. Need to do something. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It, it's the fact that I've had um, bad experiences previously where uh, people, teams I've worked with, there is, let's say, a person that really demotivated the entire team and, but kept, kept on working there for, you know, a long time. I decided for myself, I didn't want to be the sort of employer where um, one person could like ruin the experience for everyone, if that makes sense. So I wanted yeah. to understand what is the process around, you know, I can't just fire someone just because I fancy it, right? Like yeah. that's not how it works. Well, so how does it work? Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was really, that was really interesting because actually that filled a gap. It was something that neither accelerator programs really went into that both covered recruitment um but the hr side um in terms of like how to actually like manage your employer responsibilities was a really good complementary training to do alongside those yeah. um sorry did that sort of answer your question i no, feel like no, i went by deep I mean, that. <laughs> what, we, what we we're painting a picture yeah what we're painting a picture is that you're you've set up a company you've started working on this thing and happen to be land in the situation where you've got these two accelerated programs happening at the same time, and you're doing an additional training thing, and you're doing climate. All, all the, but the key thing is what we're trying to what we're talking about here is trying to get enough of a kickstart in what your employer responsibilities are, what your functional responsibilities, what your business commercial responsibilities are, so that you can put yourself in a position where, as a as an organisation, you have the best chance of success. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting in what you're saying is that the filling in the form itself forced you to concentrate on some of those pieces. Now, a lot of people have that when, because as I understand, you're not really interested in going down the equity, you know, funding kind of model. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably steering a whole conversation by saying that and moving on. But, um, it, it, but that is something that most people who are doing that equity thing have to do at that stage. But this sounds like you've managed to kind of Oh, I mean, what, so what I'm getting to is one of the first things we did on that session was actually, before we actually kicked off, uh, was to get you to say why you're making games. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, that at the heart of what I'm hearing from you is what we're trying to answer is the why of what we're doing. And, and the why leads to the how, the what, the, you know, who... And you know all the usual, you know five, six Ws. I can't remember how many Ws there are yeah. in the acronym. But yeah, and that, that was so useful. Yeah, well, I mean, that was I remember that session, and it was mm. so so useful. And there was an, a similar ish session, but different uh, on the other accelerator program, which mm. is all about vision, yeah. mission, and values. And I think both those together actually helped form, you know complete some of the picture and as you said even filling out the forms there were some of those things that we did need to think about like what are we about as a company why are we doing this how are we going to go about doing it and for what purpose in particular was really important to certainly to love wish because we're trying to fill a particular niche um and I think as a result of that, it did solidify again, like another notch further the identity, but it also uh, allowed me to understand better what kind of investment we would and wouldn't want to take. Yeah. Um, before the accelerator program, I was willing and open and wanting to learn about all the different types of investment that are out yeah. there. And I thought I would be open to all of them. It's one of the reasons why when we set up the company, I limited it by shares because I thought that we might want to have you know, equity investment. 
Um, but actually, as a result of going through this process through both accelerator programs, I realized that that just doesn't match at all what our company's aims are. That's not to say that there might not be some investors out there that would want to invest with the same aims in mind. But our aims aren't about an exit strategy. We're not about building the company in order for the company itself to gain more value. Our aims are all about putting out the products into the world to basically what I want is for every 12 year old girl to be able to play games that are going to be intelligent and stimulate her intelligence while being also really fundamentally really interesting to play you know that yeah. that is the mission and i think that's really powerful because i think um what i think a lot of people don't really understand is the import i often get uh, laughed at by my business partner ella uh because i'm so obsessed with these kind of key phrases so like i want us to embody curiosity tenacity and transparency now that matters to me these are branding phrases but what do they actually mean is Ella's response. Who, who cares? Why would they care? Well, the reason I think these things are useful, and, and by the way, we, we do agree on this thing in general, it's that we want you to think about curiosity because of what it does for our approach as a business. We want it to be an effect of the way we make decisions. We want the tenacity to represent our ability to persist and sustain and, and to think about things, not just about the moment, but in the long term. So we think about these things in kind of these are core values. And if you're not marketing type like me, you might think this is just airy fairy, wishy washy nonsense. And then you'd be right, except <laughs> when you can take a step back and apply them and have some hard, cold numbers that say, OK, so when I when I'm planning, when I'm going to do the next thing, is this going to solve this problem I've got? Is it going to let me move to this direction I'm trying to get to? Is it going to take the company forward? Well, having these kind of this idea of visions, values, having these kind of frameworks, having this ability to sit back and think of what it is on earth we're trying to do at all makes that less risky. And to me, that's what these accelerator programs are intended to do is to share some frameworks of thinking that allow you to focus your attention on what matters to your business. Is that, yeah. is that a fair summary? That is very fair. And I think that is such a good point because absolutely um, those high level, whatever it is at the high level that you understand about your business, then informs every decision, all the small decisions that you're making, right? For, for me, yeah, certainly, yeah. it meant that I then know what to say no to. Right. That was that was why I could say no to equity investment, because I knew yes. that it would not fit with those high level decisions about the business. And I would not have known that before I went on the accelerator program because I just never even considered it. I never even knew in I didn't have enough information about what equity investment was. I didn't have enough information about what we were from a high level perspective. Um, and, and it just consolidated all of that. So we're talking about high-level strategy. Were there any other things that you found useful in these programs that kind of like, you know, that helped you think about your company in general, but also what you wanted to do with it and how you work with your team? Um, yeah, sure. I think I think one of the things that um, really helped was it, both programs really helped increase the level of confidence I had in running my own company, uh, which then has an impact on everything as well. Absolutely. Yeah, no question. Uh, you know, it, it was before when it when all of this kicked off initially, I said to my husband, the way I see this going is one day when I've just about got it running and we can afford to bring in a CEO externally and like some of the kind of C-suite people, I'll just hand over the reins of the company to someone else. And then I can just focus on making games. Right. That's that was kind of what I thought would be best because I didn't see myself wanting to do the boring stuff of running a company. Like who would want to do that if you're a game dev, right? Um, but the more I learned about what it actually entails and how much creativity there is, you know, in running a company, the uh, uh, fundamentally, like, I think I do have a very strategic approach. I do love looking at the big picture stuff and then going like, okay, this is the right direction to go in based on all of this data and this, you know, historically how we've performed the strengths of the team, the weaknesses, you know, and combining all of these really disparate pieces of information together into something that feels like, okay, this is the right direction to go in to meet these goals. Um, 
once I started seeing it through that framework, it was only like two months ago or so ish that I had the same conversation with my husband. And I said, you know what? I think I might actually like being a CEO. I don't think I want to bring someone else in. It's <laughs> a crazy thought. I, I, I struggle with the CEO title because the way we work as a company, it's an absolute partnership. There's no, it's mm. like, Ella is the organized one. I'm the strategic thinking one. Um, and, you know, nine, the company would not work without that combined sense of brain. Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, the fact that we happen to like each other helps. Um, you know, and, and, you know, this this principle of having a connection where you've got a sense of trust, you've got a sense of group. I think uh, this is one of the key things I think that's really important for any organization is that it's actually not about the one person. It's about how the group operates in a connected way. And I think one of the things that I find really valuable about getting involved with accelerators, whether I'm lecturing or, I mean, I actually have never been on one, but I have been mentoring and all that kind of stuff for years. What I found really useful though, is just being amongst other like-minded people who are going through the same problems. We actually never even had a mentor until relatively recently, and we're very lucky that we got Nick Brighton Brown, who will uh, sit and listen to our moaning on about things and remind us that we might actually know what we're talking about occasionally. Um, you know, and that's a fantastic thing where you've got somebody who you respect who can give you that kind of like ability to step back. And I think that's what I think is beautiful about kind of mentoring accelerator programs and so forth is not having to feel alone. Not having to be the only person who's trod that path. And I think this ability to see some framework. So a lot of the frameworks that we use in, in the Brainwork are steeped in this uh, kind of MBA style model. But we the one we were doing, we try to bring a lot of game specific experience to that. So um, hopefully we yeah. give it well, you tell me, but I mean my feeling is that we could try and give that game specific experience that gives that kind of framework of the company the game business the commercial side but then also thinking about things like bringing in experts for hr or, or legal yeah. or whatever that's a really good point actually because it's not that it's not as if i've not um you know looked up information hmm. previously or even attended some training programs um let's say around leadership and various other things that are that weren't games industry specific and what really excited me about these accelerators was the fact that they were games industry specific because there are some, well, in fact, actually, there's a heck of a lot of stuff that is nuanced, is slightly different. It's a little bit not quite like it is for, for other companies that are, for example, dealing with lots of physical goods that they need to like buy, <laughs> you know, and, and store somewhere and a, a kind of lo logistical differences that actually change the nature of how the, the business works. Um, and, and, and having them. Interesting because we had a, a, a guy on the team who's fantastic by the way. And it was really, I think, I think got a lot out of it, but there it was very obvious because they were a work of a higher company, not an IP driven company. There were some parts of the program that just weren't relevant to them. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I would have liked to have been able to take them on a different path to deal with. So I, I'm no, I've no idea how to run and work for a higher company. Thankfully, Ella does. Um, she's done that for, for years. So she would be able to talk about kind of managing the contract side, looking for, you know, when you take on a contract, you're not just looking for the money, you're looking, does it help expose the profile does it uh, increase our skill set in other ways can it demonstrate some other thing and, and these kind of mindsets are relevant to a work for hire company in ways that aren't relevant to ip companies and we're both still games yeah so yeah. even within games each slice is very unique needs absolutely yeah very good point i think that's one of the reasons why creative enterprise split their accelerator programs into foundations for game studios and foundations for i'm going to misquote it but something like game service companies yeah. um uh, and i can i can definitely see that there is there is a difference and just imagine if i had joined just any random accelerator program that's like accelerate your business now accelerator gen generic for all businesses i'd be sat next to people working in retail and you know like and, and the thing is i probably would learn some... a lot from it yeah 
you know, but it's, not it's, the same. It, but it's not, it's just not the same. I think the, the value the, there were just so many amazing speakers, people that really knew their stuff, their history and experience. I loved listening to their stories also, you know, how they built their companies, the challenges that they went through and being able to imagine that these are some things that hopefully we will never have to go through because I've now heard someone else do it and I won't make the same mistakes. <laughs> but, you know, we'll make plenty of our own mistakes. Um, and, and knowing that, you know, people made mistakes and still managed to create hugely successful companies, you know, they survive these really difficult times is really, really encouraging. Um, we talk and then, about the generic principle. I mean, a, a lot of these platforms are inspired by a bunch of different tools. One of the most notable ones is a thing called the Business Model Canvas, which is a very interesting model. I mean, it, it's one of many, but it, it, it's one that is quite common on accelerator programs. So when we looked at that, we didn't think that was going to work because um, we felt that the distribution method of games is so much more focused and we were in the position where we were we were writing this program alongside a tv accelerator as well mm. so it's really interesting talking to the tv people at the same time as well, sorry to the people who are writing the tv program as we were writing the games program because some fundamental principles just did not apply across the piece yeah but the fact that we had, I, I mean, I don't, I'd love to know what you think, but the fact that we had the room opposite were TV people, the room inside were games people, but games people who were, some of whom were doing VR, some of whom were doing mobile, some of whom were doing a web-based game, some of them, like Andrew, doing narrative games that were very much close to what you were doing. How did you find that mix worked for you? Oh, I loved it. I, I really, really thought that that was so good. Yeah. And and the things the thing the sessions that were applicable to both of us and doing them together and meeting you know people that are in a creative space but adjacent uh, was great. The kind of the lunches, the more informal networking that was taking place uh, yeah. was really thought provoking. And I, without a doubt, there will come a point at which there will be some further interaction. You know, there's even already been some cases where you know not necessarily relevant to to what we're doing right now, but other people I've since met and I've gone, you know what, you should speak to these people from yeah. the TV accelerator. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, You'll be so, opening off one of your scripts soon, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think absolutely it was, and it was really interesting also to listen to uh, how their financial models differ to ours like significantly and the kind of challenge that they're facing. Yeah. But the other thing I really took away from it is this sense of their industry also suffers from being able to retain seniors and ex experienced folk in, in, in their industry, this, just the same as we do. And there is- Let's talk about that. I know this is something that, I mean, I, we, 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 talk, we can talk about accelerators longer, but I think I know this is a topic of interest to you. Um, you have said on many occasions to me, we have an issue in the industry because frankly the pipeline between frank even getting into the industry to being a junior to mid-tier you know to being senior starting your own studio if that's the way you want to go all that that pathway isn't isn't clear mm. what do you i mean is it that we need training programs is it that we need accelerator programs to do we want to get our juniors sitting on an on a, in, uh, indie lab i'm not serious but what is it you think about that what is the problem and what's the you know root cause you think? yeah i so i think you're right i think this it is kind of broken it's broken for for i think a number of reasons uh, we have had historically i don't think so much today but historically there has been a real issue with staff retention i think generally within yeah. the industry we had a crunch culture far more than there is today. Uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, if you burn, if you basically bring people on, chew them out and then spit them out, burnt out and, and disillusioned because nobody comes into games thinking I'm going to hate this. Everybody goes into games super excited and thinking mm -hmm. that that's going to be the best job in the universe. Right. Um, are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I am very familiar. I actually did a reverse of it for one of my uh, sections of my book. Did you? 
that is so interesting Oscar's hierarchy of socialization yeah <laughs> I can't wait to see it um but you know for anybody not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs it's kind of like a pyramid where um the base need for example is like safety and uh like you know having Security food needs, yeah. yeah so yeah. like food shelter and that kind of stuff and then it sort of goes up in each tier and the top tier at the very top is self-actualization yes. and Maslow sort of theorizes I guess that you can't reach that top tier unless all of the other needs are met so only once all of the base needs are met for each of the tiers below can you reach that next tier so of course you can't be focused on self-actualization if you're worried about can I put food on the table and will I have a roof over my head to sleep and you know, am I being bombed or, you know, whatever, that it makes it really difficult to sit at that top tier because your brain is going to be completely focused on other things. And, uh, and I think making games is there, like that is, it's self-actualization for most people that come into it, but then they get <laughs> ripped out from under them, a whole bunch of the other things that are needed in order to, to even be up there. Right. Also, because the gap between expectation and reality is huge. I mean, Maslow is an interesting one because I don't think it's actually based on evidence. It's just a really interesting model that happens yeah. to be really useful to communicate. But if you think about it, the expectation is the self-actualization part. But let's say you're a level designer. How much actual influence do you get on what the game is in practice? And the reality is that you get to have to deal this one little section of the whole game. In most cases, I was lucky because I came in from a commercial point of view. So I got to think big and never got to do the little detail stuff. And maybe that's probably explained a lot of my problems. Uh, but, but the difference between expectation and reality, I think is part of the problem. Yeah. But I think it's also the expectation, particularly the history of crunch, mm -hmm. which is never to be done. Anyone who does crunch should be just thrown out. It's just me. Uh, and any manager who says that crunch is acceptable, I think misunderstands the whole point of, actually having a team that's invested in the game yeah you're burning out that investment why yeah. would you do that you know it just makes no I, sense yeah. but but let's you know let's say okay historically we've had this issue so we've not retained historically many of our senior staff anyway so that's that's kind of where we, that's the starting point okay the industry has addressed a lot of that i think we're a lot better now there's so many studios that are thinking about um kind of how uh to create the best optimal environment for people to work in. Lots of studios now have, you know, like uh, no questions asked, leave days and, and various other kind of ways to look after the mental health, particularly after the pandemic. I think it's been, you know, really on, on the forefront of a lot of studios. So why then, why then is there still this issue? The industry is expanding rapidly. Okay, so there are more studios than ever. There are more people yeah. needed to make games than ever. So by by necessity, that's just not happened. You know, we don't have the seniors to accommodate for that. But then there's the other side, which is that in order to have seniors in the first place, like to get from junior to senior level, you need to learn from a senior, yeah. right? And if all, all our seniors are focused on making games and not training juniors, then the juniors don't get the training they need to get to mid-level. And certainly mid-level folk, I think, are really in a tough spot because there's very rarely time to train anyone who's at mid-level. Uh, up to like senior level <laughs> um and and so what i'm hearing from studios is they're saying i would like to bring on more juniors i would like to have more mid-level folk but i don't have the seniors to train them i don't have enough yeah. seniors i need more seniors first in order to then be be able to bring on more juniors and i think it's also a case that what we have is that we've seen it essentially rather than the bigger organizations which i think we more historically had that particularly the mid-tier studios, are less and less common. Mm -hmm. We have lots and lots of micro-studios. And micro-studios simply have no scope to manage the overhead of training. I think there was an interesting one, um, particularly uh, the Kickstart campaign, that uh, where there was government funding so that people would get their first junior job with, uh, I think it was 28 hours that was paid uh, by government was massively useful and in fact we were able to take on a couple of people we actually hired one of them full-time as a result we're moving that person into becoming a junior producer more or less I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that but yeah 
Um, but that whole idea of developing someone from their entry point through to the you know the mid tier you know the kind of um, intermediate level skill set, but realizing that going to a senior is a much more complicated than just extra skills, I would argue, because typically there's a leadership function, and that is a different mental shift yeah. than just more skill. I would argue. Is that fair? I think that's really interesting uh, to perspective. Uh, I think leadership is a skill also. So yes, it, it, is. It, is, it is more skill, but just different skill that people often don't think about. Um, <laughs> I think it's also perspective difference. Yeah, I mean, there is. That's I mean, the true. Reason I'm, the reason I'm mentioning it is because of one of the things that we think I think is actually quite difficult to train <clears throat> um, is when you are somebody who has a job to do and does the job, you can get into a routine, a process, makes a lot of sense. Shifting from that routine and process to having to devise what steps should be there when there's an absence of those steps, that's a different kind of mindset and a different kind of mental exercise, I would argue. Again, trainable, no question. Yeah. But it does require a, a different type of gear shift, I would argue. Yeah, I, I completely see that. I think there is also, so what does senior mean, right? Yes. That's, that is one of the questions. One aspect, sometimes when people say senior, what they're talking about is someone who can, you know, self-manage, can break down yeah. the work for other people in terms of what they need to do for more junior members, somebody who mentors juniors. Yeah. Sometimes it means they're a specialist. So they don't necessarily, yeah. they might have a lead who still manages what they should be focusing on, but they specialize in a particular area to the point where they can work independently uh without needing further mentorship to get it right um and i think it varies from discipline to discipline and you know like how exactly that all hangs together uh but that's to bring it back to like an earlier point is that yeah that that pipeline of like going from one to the, the other is broken and it was interesting you mentioned mentioned the kickstart um program which i thought was also really good uh for a similar reason is that it, there is such a huge investment from game studios to get a junior in what people are, i think often forget is okay so you pay the junior salary that's one thing and of course that is a minimum kind of cost then there is the cost of how much time it takes the junior to learn things and the iterations it requires and the feedback it requires. So there is time lost by the junior for not being effective at, at their job initially. Okay, but those are not the only costs. Then you have the time cost on the seniors and the, and the leadership team that need to then train that junior. And that is a far bigger cost to the studio than the junior themselves and the time that they spend learning things. Uh, and, and that's why I think Actually, really, we're in a kind of weird position right now in games where individually each studio on their own are trying to hire seniors in order to be able to get more juniors. We're trying to solve it on an individual basis where I think actually this is a nationwide problem that we should be solving nationwide. But you know that, Oscar, that I, I have yep. plans. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, again, I think this is the thing is that we always underestimate. I mean, we actually learned this when we were you know, working on projects and we were getting dev teams involved it might be cheaper to get a cheap team that's full of juniors but it's always more expensive than hiring a team of experts yes experts not only know what they're doing already therefore explaining what you need them to do is easier they will also not have the assumption you know you're not you don't have to explain the assumptions to them either well to a certain extent it's always always to a certain extent on that one um, but also they have the routines and processes and tools in place already to do the job quicker. So I think this is the, the thing is that there's a, there's a fallacy of hiring someone cheap is not is often the most expensive solution. Yeah. But a lot of studios don't have a choice, right? Yeah, a lot true. of micro studios and even mid-level studios don't have a choice. They, they end up having to hire people because they don't have the money or the kind of prestige to be able to attract you know specialists the only way that you might be able to do that is if you've previously worked 
you know, with other specialists yourself and then set up your own studio and go, hey, come and join my team. <laughs> um, but then there's all the other aspect of it, which is that we worry about training people up in case they just leave us. And I think that's yeah. the craziest thing possible because if you take a team member and you don't invest in them and help develop their career, they're going to leave anyway. Yeah. If you actually invest in their career, invest in their skill set, and you can support their development, you're going to get a better person. And if they happen to leave, well, they're less likely to because they're more likely to be loyal because you've put investment in them. But more that even if they do leave, when they leave, their feedback about your company will be fantastic. Mm. And well, so far, uh, being the case. Um, and if that's the case, your ability to recruit new people to replace them is much easier because you're seen as a place that's healthy, useful, valuable, interesting to be at. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, and uh, I think that's a really good perspective. Yeah. I, I've certainly found that so far at Love Wish. Um, everybody that's that's joined as an employee, I've said to, look, I understand that we're not like some big company right now. Yeah. And if you if you do at any point want to leave or you, you find a, a job that you're really interested in, um, you know, and I fully expect that to happen, just tell me and I'll, you know, I'll sing your praises. I'll help you get that job. Right. And and we'll even if it's a case of maybe I don't quite have the skills or we need to slightly tweak kind of how we present the stuff that, that we've done. Or can I get an opportunity to work on X before I get to the interview stage so that I can say I have done this at least once. I'm open to all of that. And it sounds crazy, right? Because I don't want to lose all of my best people. I'd be so sad if Lorna le left. She is like my golden star right now. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I adore working with her. And, and, and yeah, that would be like a sad moment for me but, personally. But I would also be so happy that she managed to grow at my company enough to be able to go and move on to something that she's really inspired by. Um, and, and I think that's okay. Like, I don't see it as a, a cost, uh, in the sense that in, in the meantime, while she is here and she is doing great work, I am investing in her also. And that's fine. Like, I don't need yeah. any more than that. If she leaves in a year's time, if she leaves in three months time, it's no loss to me. No, exactly. um, and to and the, the company. And the thing is, the more you... Was it to quote someone, the you know, more you clench your fists, the more star systems fall through your fingers? Or like that. <laughs> I love um, that. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's the thing is that it's about engaging people. It's about making people feel like they belong and empowering them. And I think, you know, there are tax benefits out there that help you if you invest in training. And, uh, and we're actively trying to support people who want to expand from their role, who understand what they're doing contextually so we you know i've got a guy who does bd teaching about how ua works so that you know if he understands user acquisition he can then talk about that more effectively to the devs when we talk about what we do but more importantly he's just interested in what that does and how it works and that's fine that's great i'm i'm, I'm delighted about that we're running out of time so um i am going to just kind of see if i can get you to sum up so looking back at this whole process of learning organizationally and individually what would you say is the one thing you'd like people to take away from you know your experience working with accelerators or all this conversation about juniors what is that one thing you think that a game developer should be thinking about hmm that's a good question uh i think you know um in terms of personal growth right? Um, everybody's probably heard of growth mindset and so forth. Um, it's great. Like, it's great to learn anyway, like just on a fundamental level. But going to a, a games accelerator program, I think what it does is if you're either thinking of setting up a studio or you have just set up a studio or you have already been running a studio for a while, uh, but you just want to expand like your understanding of it, because there are other programs as well, like the scale up program and various other programs that are out there that can help take your business from where it is to like somewhere else. Um, going through that process, hearing from my peers and kind of where they're at and what they're struggling with. I've learned so much through that. It, I think it just helps at the end of the day, it helps minimize risks. It, I found it hugely empowering. I built confidence. Like there were so many benefits to it. It's like, 
if you if you get the opportunity to do it do it like I, i'd say that to anyone if you have the opportunity to accelerate accelerate <laughs> i totally get it i totally get it. i totally agree i mean for, I, i've loved being part of the process trying to try and take my understanding and, and lessons but the interesting thing about it whenever i do these things i'm learning more than i'm taking in and i think that's that's really whether you're whether you're talking on them and we were lucky enough to have some amazing people uh you know uh who friends of ours who were very you know very generous with their time to talk to the people on the on the, the accelerator i loved seeing you know meet yourself and and, and you know people like andrew and and uh, adam and co who people i knew already who were on the on the thing and being able to sit there and see their different perspectives as well for me like you say it's all about learning we are learning machines in fact what is games if it's not about playful learning um yeah i think raf costa said something like that i'm sure um but anyway nina that's been fantastic thank you so much for taking time uh, and uh, this has been our game dev london podcast um so uh, just to sum up um uh, basically uh we are um uh, you know if you like subscribe all the usual things if you think this is great tell other people about it uh, and if you're interested there's a discord group as well where you can have further conversations with other interested game dev developers but all sorts of aspects whether they're fast experiences with the juniors or if they're aspiring to be new um you know studio heads or or, or build their own companies so uh joining with the conversation if you're interested in the development of games thank you very much all and uh this has been your podcast